0: I think a band is a lot like a startup for a bunch of reasons. And it really teaches you how to manage a team of people in very difficult times. Everybody in the company knew we had built something special and something meaningful and that people cared about that solved what we saw as a really big problem. So I think underneath all, we had something really valuable. I remember the first time I saw that, our CTO showed it to me and I thought, this is it. Like, we're home.
1: From GGV, this is founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharczyk from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm very excited to have Tim Westergren with us today on Founder Real Talk. Tim founded Pandora, the pioneer in online music, and also served as the company's CEO and chief strategy officer during his 17 years building the company from inception through an IPO in 2011 and then for several years as a public company, before Tim stepped down from formal day-to-day duties last year in 2017. Prior to founding Pandora, Tim spent several years as a professional musician, playing in bands, running a music studio, and composing film music. I was fortunate enough to meet Tim back in the 2005 era, and ultimately led GGV's investment in Pandora in 2010, serving on the board of directors as an observer through the IPO. We're going to cover Tim's incredible run as a founder and leader at Pandora for many years today. Tim, welcome to Founder Real Talk.
0: Good to be here, Glenn.
1: So first off, I just wanted to tie in your your music background with founding a company., uh, you said that working in a band helped you prepare uh, for starting and running a company. What do you mean by that? and um, maybe flesh it out what what's it like to be in a band? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's ups and downs. There's, there's high, big highs, and big lows. but yeah, I mean, I think a band is a lot like a startup for a bunch of reasons one of course it's a creative endeavor it has no well charted path so you know you're kind of improvising and making it up as you go you're you get rejected a lot lots of no's and uh, you're poor as church mice you know so you're always worrying about the next paycheck and it really teaches you how to Kind of manage a team of people in very difficult times, mm-hmm. which is kind of what a startup is about. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's there's even no clear leader in a band, like who, who who's the manager and who's the manager? You got all that same thing, like who's responsible for what, uh, who make how do you make decisions? Do do responsibilities sort of comfortably fit together? Do they overlap? You know, it's it's got all the basic ingredients of management one hundred and one in one one little petri dish. So I'm sure you had a great music career. At some
1: point, you decided, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start a company. You founded Pandora in 1999, and the company went public, as I mentioned, in 2011. So it was a 12-year journey from founding to IPO. You know, not not terrible, but clearly not an overnight success. And I was wondering if you could take us back to the, to the earliest days of the company uh, when I first met you in the 2004-05 era. I think you you were just um, transitioning from the company being called Savage Beast to Pandora. Uh, you were initially selling like recommendation kiosks into record stores and then made this transition to online radio. So in those early days, it must've been pretty tough. And I know you, there there are stories out there of you really having to scrape pennies together to try to pay your employees and it must've been very difficult to keep morale up in that kind of environment. Tell us a little bit
0: about what that was like. Yeah, we had we had quite the quite the adventure. Um, so we founded it at the very end of '99. We actually raised our first round of seed financing in March of 2000. Mm-hmm. Literally, I think three weeks before everything fell off a cliff. Yeah. So I, I think the door slammed shut behind us. You know, when it came to raising money, and we didn't know at the time the kind of you know situation we were setting sail into, but. We were sort of happily building our product, and it took us about a year to sort of build a prototype, and and then we realized we're going to have to start thinking about raising more money, and, and it became clear pretty quickly that that was going to be difficult. You know, it was difficult for everyone, but yeah. you know we were in music, which was at that point Napster was really at its heyday. There were people who were questioning whether the industry of music was going to survive. Yeah. So we started pitching and So post
1: Internet bubble and in like an industry people didn't want to touch. No, it was
0: Armageddon. And uh, we were not really fundable, which I learned the hard way. But in O one essentially seeing that we were gonna have to try to make sort of our funds last, we began asking our employees to work for an ever smaller share of their salary in cash, essentially giving people options in lieu of cash. And and that shrunk and shrunk until I think the end of O one is when we stopped paying people altogether. And about 50 people worked sort of full or part time for about two years without getting paid wow. to survive the downturn, um, which I learned in hindsight is actually illegal in California. You can't work for free, even voluntarily. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't know that at the time, so we didn't have that added stress. But yeah, I mean, by the end of 04, we had, I think, close to $2 million of back salary owed. I had 11 maxed out credit cards. I probably owed a few hundred thousand dollars in additional debt to sort of friends and family. And, you know, we hadn't really built a business. So it, was, it was tough. You must have
1: had very strong conviction and belief to let yourself get in that position. And you must have been able to sell that to your employees, the, the 50 mm-hmm. or so whom were, were, were working for free, uh, yeah. helping <laughs> you break the law. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was going on in your mind and what do you think was going on in, in, the, in the minds of the folks who were so dedicated to the cause?
0: You know, I thought a lot about how it was that we actually managed to survive that because it required a lot of people to do something pretty profoundly irrational for a long period of time. Mm. And I think there were sort of a few things. I do think that at its core, the idea that the Music Genome Project and this little prototype that we had built was pretty awesome. You know, it was sort of a magical device. You'd type in a song. And you get a set of recommendations, most of which you'd never heard before, and it was like this font of discovery. Mm. And I think everybody in the company knew, and a lot of people that saw that product knew we had built something special and something meaningful and and that people you know cared about that solved what we saw as a really big problem. So I think underneath all we had it, we thought we had something really valuable. Let's say we hadn't proven that yet, but we felt that way. And then I think the second dynamic is it's a bit like gambling where you know, you commit little by little, you know, month at a time, and just gradually. And after a while, you find yourself sort of much further than you thought you would be. You know, it's a bit like what happens to people in Las Vegas, right? Yep. They, they walk out of the casino with just their undershorts on. You know, and how did I get here? And I think what happens is two things. One, it's very hard at any given point to say, "That's it. I'm done. I fucked up. I lost that time, but I gotta stop." Uh, and move on. Some cost, yeah. yeah. And it's a big self-admission to say that. Yeah. that's a very hard thing to do. That's one. And then the second thing is, you develop a lot of obligation, I think, and loyalty to people around you, who have been through this with you. And it's really hard to turn to your left and say to the person next to you, who's been at this, you know, for two years, look, you know, this is too hard for me. I'm out of here. I think teams, when they hit these tough patches, they either scatter quickly. And things end, or the opposite happens where you kind of come together. And then you sort of are doing it for each other as much as anything. I certainly, as a founder, you know, I was tied to the mast. Like I had convinced people to do this, I had sort of been leading the charge. I was going to be the last one out. There was just no question for me. I certainly became, I think, adept at motivating and inspiring people and kind of uh, convincing people to hang in there. That's true, but uh, a lot of dynamics are at play. Mm-hmm. And no, no, probably nothing more powerful than
1: for the folks who were following you to see you tied to the mast and, and say "Yeah." and well, I, mean, I was the was first one to stop paying
0: myself, and along with my two other co-founders. So you know, you lead by example, yeah. of course. But yeah, it's not easy.
1: Wow. Okay. So you got through that mm-hmm. and shifted your model right around the time we met in '05. I think you launched the online radio service, but that wasn't your initial business idea, right? right. As, as you were developing the music genome project. How did the idea come about for online radio? And you know, I, I guess I have found that it, it's hard to switch switch business models when you're at a company and kind of head in one direction, and then you know someone has an idea and go another direction. How did you engineer the change at Pandora <laughs> to, to say, like, okay, this is the company we're going to be now. We're going to be an online radio company. Well, which also was, uh, you know, uh, people would say, what? What does that mean? <laughs>
0: it wasn't like were Wasn't obvious. Wasn't obvious. So the first thing I did was hire a fabulous CEO in 04 shortly after we raised the series B financing a fellow named Joe Kennedy who became sort of my partner for the next 10 years and came into it with a background in consumer marketing and a fresh set of eyes and fresh energy and he really came in, and I think spent the first few months hold up doing research, mm. you know, trying to figure out like where do you take this thing? And he kind of led the company through this process, really, of sort of reimagining itself. And and it was a, he, really his insights and the sort of collective discussion led us to say, well, wait a minute, we've got this song-based discovery system that's very unique, and you know, radio is a song-based consumption, and radio is thriving. Broadband had gone mainstream uh, back then, so streaming audio had become really something for everyone, and and that sort of led to this idea. Let's see if we could create what we called one-click custom radio. That was the initial name one, of the product. One-click
1: custom radio. One-click, okay. yeah, very I know, sexy. I, I may have heard that at one point, <laughs> but I've forgotten that. That's cool.
0: <laughs> that was our internal name for it, and and then we put a team of people on it. I'm going to say it took us, you know, four six months or so to sort of build the very first prototype, and. I remember the first time I saw that. You know, Tom Conrad, our CTO, showed it to me, and I thought, "This is it. Like we're home. This oh, is what we cool. should have been doing all along." And now, that said, we couldn't have done that three or four years ago, prior, because the infrastructure wouldn't have supported it. Right. Um, a number of reasons, but it turned out to be the right right direction. So you had
1: a tiger team building online right. the online radio one-click custom radio while you were still doing your kiosk thing and running the business the other way.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we essentially, we were in survival mode for yeah. four years. And when you do that, you do anything you can to keep afloat. You try different business models, you try to find some NRE money here, some NRE money there, you know, just whatever you can, even just some logos to put on your PowerPoint to raise money. You know, you're just trying to sort of figure out some way to build a narrative to get you to the next step. And so, yeah, we were a direct license sort of technology, we built kiosks in record stores. We, we were trying anything. Yeah. We, we kept those going. And then essentially put that all to bed when we realized this was our future. Okay, so you did decide to jettison everything Abs- else oh, absolutely. and let's
1: focus on online radio. Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Shortly after it launched, we, we knew this was the right direction. Got it. Okay, did
1: you have any, you know, internally when you made that decision, did you have any people who were kind of disbelievers or skeptics? And, you know, if that was the case, how did you deal with with that
0: yeah, I think we certainly had a lot of people who doubted the viability of an online radio. You know, At that point Yahoo, Microsoft and AOL had products. No one was making money at it mm-hmm. and those were sort of mediocre products. I don't think anybody saw that as sort of a promising space. So certainly we we're skeptics. But there was certainly a core of us in the company looking at that product thinking this solves a huge problem in a really elegant way, it's very unique and we're going to blow open this space. And we're not sure we're going to make money on it, but we'll figure it out. I remember talking to Tom Conrad about it, you
1: know, from his perspective. And Tom, as you mentioned, was was CTO of the company yeah. and and was I guess heavily involved in this yeah. project. Yeah, absolutely. You know, now Tom has stepped down, but was running product at, at mm-hmm. Snap, and mm-hmm. so you know he's seen a lot in his career. And I think from his perspective, that first gen online radio, at Pandora, is one of his favorite sort of product projects that he's been involved with. So it must must have been a pretty special thing.
0: Yeah, I mean. I think we kinda of caught lightning in a bottle, you know, for a little while. And, you know, Tom's sort of one of those product geniuses. Yeah. And I think what he brought to this, which I think is kind of the, the sort of mark of a great product person, is the ability to solve a huge problem with simplicity. And you know, fundamentally there were a bunch of things about Pandora's product that made it successful, but first and foremost it was drop-dead easy to use. Super easy. And if you looked around the music space at that time, everything was complicated, difficult. You know, it was built by music fans or by technologists for themselves. And this was truly a mainstream product. And we we actually we designed the whole interface so that it would not feel like it was targeted at anybody. So if you were 85 years old, wanted to listen to some traditional jazz, you felt like the site was built for you just as much as if you were a teenage hip hopper.
1: One of the things I remember, you know, after I met you in 05, I became probably one of your first users of the online radio service. And I can remember how easy it was to get into business with you guys. You just like you typed in Pandora.com yeah. and were asked, name an artist or a song. And that was it. And then the music started playing. It was just such a wonderful, easy and approachable service, you know. So so his handiwork and yours were really apparent and I think that helped drive the growth. But let's so let's talk okay, so you transition to the online radio business and then you encounter your next big challenge. <laughs> um, laws and regulations hadn't hadn't really caught up to the technology and the rates you were going to have to pay for the music you were streaming were were really hotly contested. I can still remember as an early listener Getting an email from you and Joe, probably in '06 or '07 timeframe, saying you know, asking me to, in some way, participate in a uh, you know, let your congressman know if you like this service that hey, we're gonna die unless we do something yeah. about it. Like there were lots of interests looking to put you guys out of business, and that's got to be super tough. I mean, you it felt to me like you were on the the brink of being out out of business, and this is after now having a service that was starting to you know catch hold and being. Being really well received, how did you deal with that? What was that like?
0: <laughs> yeah, that was one of the strange, the many strange episodes of the company. You know, like you said, we had we'd launched a product and and it was growing like a weed, and we had a lot of momentum and, and we're feeling you know great having you know having gone through this four year trial of job and and then this ruling came out. I actually remember where I was when I found we we had been sort of been waiting with bated breath for this the copyright office to uh, put out its ruling. And you're right that when that was published, it meant the end of internet radio because the rates would have essentially tripled yeah, and it would have put everybody out of business. And and we had a board meeting, I think, the very next day and the discussion was, okay, when do we shut down? Because all we're doing is burning money now. Every hour we, we play, we pay royalties and there's not even a chance of profitability. And we essentially, Joe and I sort of said, look, we could appeal to... Congress. That's sort of the one place we can go. We had, we had called the labels and, and, and we sort of appealed to them to say, look, can we get this changed? And no one was willing to entertain that. So like they say, it would take an act of Congress you know, to get this rolled back. So we decided to sort of, as a Hail Mary, see if we couldn't bring some pressure to bear and Sort of quickly boned up on the sort of process for that, hired some folks in DC to help us and organized our own grassroots campaign. And as you said, we sent out emails to our listeners. Yep. And the beauty of the web is, you know, when you registered, you gave us your zip code. So when we sent a, an email, we said, Hey Glenn,
1: we, you knew you know, who, please knew call and,
0: and you're a member of Congress. And by the here's his or her name and phone number. <laughs> and we got just the most extraordinary response. Mm. Um, something like two million people called or wrote or actually visited their members' offices to express their sort of dismay about this ruling. It was such an overwhelming response that Congress literally intervened. So leaders in the House and Senate called a meeting in D.C. with all the players in this and said in front of all of us, look, something has gone terribly wrong here. Our phones are ringing off the hook like literally from 9 to 5 every day. You need to go back and fix it. And so they essentially mandated a renegotiation which took about a year, and had so went off the rails more than once, but ultimately uh, resulted in a new rate being issued that allowed us to survive. But um, yeah, we were very lucky to get through that.
1: So harnessing the power, like the grassroots power of your community, was key. You know, I'm reminded of what Square did back in its early days mm-hmm. um, when VeriFone kind of attacked the company as being illegal, and Square was able to also, you know, harness the, the community. Of small merchants who were so dedicated to using square, and that had a big impact on how that ultimately got resolved, so it sounds like you guys were were even earlier than that in using the power of, of the user base that's that's quite a lesson
0: yeah, that was in our DNA really from the get-go. I mean music is this deeply personal emotional category, yeah. right and when we are providing someone with music they love, like they care about you, yep, and uh, we had from the very beginning. Very proactively engage with listeners. You know, if you sent us an email, we sent you a personal reply. I actually replied myself to every single email we got for the first month or two before I got overwhelmed. And but we can, we hired more people to do that. And and I actually even went out and hosted town hall meetings yeah. for Pandora listeners, if you remember. Oh yeah, lots and lots um, of them. all over the country. You know, Biloxi, Mississippi to New York City and everything in between, where we would meet. You know, with even a dozen at a time or a hundred or three hundred, just to engage with listeners. And I think that when this thing happened to us with the rates. There was an audience of people who cared about Pandora, felt they were part of it. And, you know, we got more calls on that we heard in DC than they got in the entirety of the Iraq war on that topic. So wow. it's kind of strange. That is strange. It's a little Troubling, but the level of connection. It's why Pandora grew to what hundred million listeners with barely a dime in marketing. Because yeah. people were just telling everybody they knew about it.
1: Yeah. Also, yeah, one of the one of the real original word of mouth. Yeah, completely growth companies. Okay. Which is an amazingly fun thing to be part of. Yeah, it must have been awesome. It was cool to be an investor, and in, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So I want to get to the a, a key decision around your growth in a, in a moment, but I also want you you, you mentioned that you brought Joe Kennedy on yeah. CEO in the 04 time frame, and you know I, I was curious what led you to that decision, and you know what what characteristics you looked for in somebody, and then you know now that you're working with lots of entrepreneurs and advising them and investing in them, do you advise or how, how do you think about the decision to bring somebody on to help you run your company.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such an important and frequent decision that needs to be yeah. made. So so we had made, myself and our board had made the decision to hire a CEO post-investment and I really I was sort of the first one to say we should do that. I wanted to have a partner to help me. I didn't actually want the job at the time. And probably because my time was better spent in a different role. Yep. And I think actually that's a piece of advice I give to all founders is always ask yourself what should I really be doing? You know, don't be attached to a particular title or role. And it's really as a founder, there are certain things that you can do probably uniquely well or only you can do, and you should be spending your time on that and hire people to do other things. So we were the the table was set to hire someone, and so Joe uh, you know came from the car business, you know he'd been at Saturn, one of the yeah. sort of founding teams, Saturn. He came in in like a you know blue blazer and khaki pants and (laughs) you know button down shirt and I just loved the guy from the first moment we met and I think we had a real personal rapport. He was obviously terrifically bright, but low ego, and delightful guy, and we hit it off. And I think although I I this is all hindsight as I think about why I made that decision, you know I I had a certain instinct that having somebody who whose skills were very complementary to mine. Who had a low ego, and you know was very bright. Was that's all you need, you know? Then you use your instinct. You think this is a person that you can partner with, and and you know he and I were. You know, if you ask somebody in those years who runs the company, I think they'd say Joe and Tim, and we had very natural roles that were very symbiotic, and I think we each respected and valued the other person's contribution. There was no jealousy. It was really kind of mutual respect, and in a sense, even celebrating the success of the other in their respective roles. so it was just that's that's rare it is um, rare. but when it happens it is just you know a really fun thing to do cool
1: so speaking of fun
0: you managed to get through the issue around music rates
1: but about that same time another very important decision at the company was to the iPhone 2007 was coming out and you made a strategic decision internally to say like we're going to focus on this platform because yeah. up till that time The listening going on on Pandora was through Pandora.com. It was largely people at work. Usage rates were very high during the week, right? And not as high on the weekends. That's right. And here comes the iPhone. How did you guys make that decision to go support that platform? It was going to cost some money to go do it. And did you realize how big a decision that was or how much growth that could lead to when you made that decision? Or was it just sort of a, hey, let's, let's take a flyer on this thing?
0: Well, I'd be lying if I say that I knew it. What the iPhone was gonna become, of course, you know. So Scott Forstall, who's running the platform at Apple and Steve, approached us about sort of giving us early access to build the app in anticipation of launch. And we were one of only three music apps, if you imagine that now, on the iPhone when it launched. Yeah. And we had been working with flip phones. We were probably on, I don't know, two dozen flip phones. I didn't and remember that. It just was not yeah. working. And I think Tom was at the front of this, you know. Uh, Tom Conrad uh, advocating for that, but having Apple's support, it was it seemed like an awful good bet, and and we knew that mobility was central to our future because you know most radio listening happens in the car or on the go, and at that point we didn't have an answer for that, and the phone was our was going to be our our doorway in there so. In hindsight, it feels like a total no-brainer. Yep. I, I know we were resource-constrained, but I don't think there's a, in a million years we wouldn't pass up an invitation like that from a company like Apple. You know, and thank God. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the day I, the yeah. iPhone launched, we added 45,000 people on that. We fanned out across the country. I remember the day the App Store launched and had Pandora people at as many Apple stores as we could, just so you, talking you, to people you in you line. Really leaned into it. Oh my God, it was everything. And it doubled our growth rate. We were already growing pretty fast, but it doubled it just by itself as a platform. And what happened was, not only did the iPhone itself become such a huge platform, it spawned all this connected device activity. Because once people saw this and it became more mobile, consumers began demanding it. And it led to connected stereos and, of course, in-car dash integration. So in some ways, like the iPhone was sort of the you know the, the crack in the door that brought us to consumer electronics. and. Before we knew it, we were being overwhelmed with you know BD for those kinds of integrations.
1: Okay, so so now the company is on a really different kind of growth trajectory. 2011 comes around and you go public, and you were kind enough to share some wonderful pictures from the pricing and uh, with me, and what an amazing and historic event. But you know, in the dictionary under under fluctuation or gyration <laughs> is a picture of you and Joe and your stock price on those first couple of days. You know, it went up, then it went down pretty hard yeah, and yeah. exactly not what you want right? Mm-hmm. or what the, the bankers say you want, which is like a nice little jump and then steady yeah. Eddie from there. How did you manage those gyrations internally? You know, did this, this kind of up and down and euphoria and then dejection hit your employee base and if so how did you try to
0: manage that? Yeah, so ironically, I think the fact that the stock didn't sort of stay and go really high and have this sort of massive first few weeks kind of took our attention away from it as a company. So people didn't actually get obsessed with mm. the trajectory of the stock because it, it was a short story and went down. It just didn't draw a lot of attention for us. And I think for in the first few years of going public, internally we weren't distracted at all by that i think people were just it wasn't part of our story and we were very deliberate internally about not making stock price an important sort of measure or discussion topic for people probably cuz as we learned it's hard to control that yep. certainly in the near term yep. i think in hindsight we were probably a little early going public you know the the business still had to work out kinks and there were you know the kind of rule of thumb, as I've learned, for going public is when you have some degree of predictability in your business more yeah. than anything, right? And being subject to this capricious rate structure and then you know, inventing a new category, which we really were, this online you know, advertising, we were traveling an untrod path, which I think made it difficult to be public.
1: Fair enough. Well, you got through it and, uh, and, and actually flourished you know, as a public company for, for quite some time, but competition started to come you know apple after welcoming you to their platform <laughs> you know realize okay this is a real category and we should have our own service and so you know they they really doubled down on on apple music meanwhile spotify coming out of sweden and more broadly europe focused started to come to the us and get more and more uh, market share here how closely did you guys follow what was going on with your big competitors and, you know in hindsight, you think you would have done anything differently. Would the Tim today tell the Tim then mm. to, to do things differently?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I feel like we sort of had a textbook case of the innovator's dilemma, you know, ironically, having sort of been an innovator ourselves for a while. You know it's very easy to get comfortable mm-hmm. uh, doing what you're doing. It's also very easy to develop a set of hardened beliefs about your business when you've had some success and been at it for a while. You know, And for us, one of those hardened beliefs was that direct licensing was a hazard for our right. business, which is what you need to offer a subscription product. Yep. And that belief had been sort of burned into us over many years of a very adversarial relationship with the music industry, which was not by our choosing, but was sort of the result of just the way rates were set and so on. So yep. we didn't have this sort of open-mindedness to, let's bring the industry over. And and do direct deals and become a platform, not just a radio product. Right. So we made the mistake, I think, at this point in time, at this sort of that juncture when that was beginning to happen. We certainly were watching all the developments. We retrenched instead of saying, "Okay, now's the time to go broad." And there was a, a window for us when we were this category king, or we invented the category, and were the category king, to expand our scope. And I think had we done that, the ensuing years would have been quite different. Uh, so that's a big lesson learned for us. Lots of lessons in that, but certainly I wish I'd done that differently.
1: Okay, well this has been really remarkable story. Thank you for sharing sharing what uh, what, what it was like to found and grow Pandora. <laughs> We're going to end with a couple of hot seat questions. Give us the first thing that comes to mind and okay. we'll spend about a <laughs> half minute or a minute on each. What's a favorite book or you know, blog or article that you recommend that you you appreciate and enjoy that you recommend to other
0: founders. Uh, I think a book called *Stumbling on Happiness* by Daniel Gilbert.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a book about well, about many things. Uh, really, a book about planning your life. <laughs> and his underlying thesis, which he's a he's a neuroscientist and 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 has has sort of studied this and scientifically uh, sort of determined this, that human beings are very are very poor at predicting what will make them happy in the future. (laughs) And they're also actually very poor at remembering what made them happy in the past.
1: That's interesting.
0: And yet, all the decisions we make in our lives are based on the belief that we're good at both of those things. That's how we decide things. And so we're making decisions constantly with very flawed data. And it's a Buddhist philosophy fundamentally, which is you you can't live in the past or the future. You really have to uh, live in the now. And I think that that's great advice for an entrepreneur, Mm. and I I think one of the things that really kills entrepreneurs is anticipation of the future. And as much as people say set goals, have milestones, etc., you do need a path that you intend to travel. But if your mind is occupied with the future, it's not a healthy way to live. For one thing, you miss the experience itself. But I also think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. One of my pieces of advice to all entrepreneurs is like remember that this is an amazing opportunity to have your period, to have a company. Whether it succeeds or not is an incredible experience. Like Make sure you enjoy every part of it. Whether it succeeds or not, still you're learning a ton, you're getting to lead such an interesting life and, and be around interesting people and experience so many different things. It's very hard to forget that when you're surrounded by... VC is helping you make money. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, it's our fault. Okay, um, What's one thing you believe that you think most others don't believe? I think a lot of people don't believe us. I don't know if it's the majority, but I'd say that businesses that have a sort of true and authentic and noble purpose are the best businesses.
1: Cool. Okay, last question for you. Your favorite channel or song to seed a channel on Pandora?
0: I have to say Ben Folds. Ben Folds. He's like he's my trusted sort of not only as a musician himself, but as a finder of others on Pandora. I Can't go. I'm a pianist, so yeah. So I start with that. But he's a great songwriter. He's a great harmony guy. He's a great melody. He's a great arranger. He, a lot of things I care a lot about in music. He has. So he he connects to other artists like that. So I'm. I'm pretty happy with the Benfold okay, station.
1: Well, I'm, I'm super excited to hear that because I have Ben Folds 5 Radio on my Pandora. Anyway, <laughs> Tim, thanks so much for, for joining us on Founder Real Talk. This was a great episode. I know our listeners are going to love it. Oh, thanks for having me, Glenn. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at Heavybit. We wanna thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, HelloBike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.